Well, good morning. Uh, glad to be with you guys uh, this morning. You know, it's always interesting when you come across somebody, whether it's something you're watching online or something that happens in person, when you see somebody who does something uh, based on initial glances, you wouldn't expect, right? So I don't know if you remember this uh, 10, 15 years ago, Susan Boyle, for example, this is one of those where she was on Britain's Got Talent. She was in her mid forties. The people, the judges, you know, didn't think much of her and she sings and does amazing. And they're like, where did this come from? I was reading it this week. She actually has the, uh, the, the greatest in terms of sales debut album in the United Kingdom history. This woman does. And, and when, you, when you saw her, they were, they were shocked. Or if you're familiar with like the Netflix blockbuster story, you know, that's pretty well documented where originally uh, the Netflix leadership met with the blockbuster leadership and they want a blockbuster to buy their company and have them kind of lead the, the distribution for blockbuster to like mail videos. And eventually when the internet got uh, strong enough to do like streaming and blockbuster essentially laughed in their face and told them to leave. And now, you know, blockbuster is no longer and Netflix has changed how we consume content like in the entire world. Like there's all these examples of you saw something, you didn't, you didn't think that it was going to be anything. And then something happens that changes everything. And it's pretty shocking. And so today, as we continue our walk through the gospel of Mark, I just want to ask and consider yourself this question. And that's that, why do you think Jesus was rejected by so many? There's not a right or wrong answer here, but if you think about it, uh, you know, you might say maybe some of the political leaders or some of the religious leaders might have rejected Jesus because of their own self-interests, but like the average person, I mean, there's, clearly, there's many examples of people who see what Jesus has done, uh, would have been benefited by following and trusting him, and yet they decided not to. Like, why was that? Like, what, what caused these people who, again, had a lot to gain by following Jesus decide they're still not going to do that? Well, today as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see one of, if not the primary reason, that many people decided not to follow and trust in Jesus, even in the midst of all the amazing things that he was doing. And so if you have a Bible, uh, you can go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 6. If you don't have one, you can use one of those black ones. Uh, If you pull out one of those black ones, you'll notice there's a little... uh, card that has a name and an underline. You can just hold that for a second. We'll get to that later on. But if you want to read along with us, it'll be page 892. We've been going through the gospel of Mark. You know, at New City, we believe that all scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Uh, And uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the gospels. They are the four accounts of Jesus's life. Uh, We are in Mark. And we've seen, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, uh, Jesus do some really awesome miracles, some of his maybe more well-known miracles. And now we're going to see the story shift a little bit. And so we'll start in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, he, this is Jesus, left there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. So where he's leaving is right now he's in Capernaum and the surrounding villages. Uh, If you've been with us, you'll remember that he's been primarily his ministry, his earthly ministry up until this point has centered around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Capernaum was in the north, northwestern part of the Sea of Galilee region. So he's been around there. Then, of course, he went to the eastern side for a little bit. Now he was back. Uh, Now he's going to go somewhere that he hasn't done since his earthly ministry began at around the age of 30. He's going to travel back to his hometown. Now his hometown is in Nazareth. It is about 20 25 miles southwest of Capernaum, where he currently is, uh, where his home base essentially was at this point in his life. And so it took him a couple days to get there. If you're confused, especially with Christmas coming up, Nazareth, you thought Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. uh, And then his family, for safety reasons, went to Egypt for a couple of years and eventually went back up to Nazareth, where Jesus spent most of his childhood. Uh, We mentioned this in Mark chapter 1. Just important to note that Nazareth was such an insignificant town that it is never once mentioned in the Old Testament. And not only that, it is never mentioned in any other significant Jewish writings. 
Uh, we know historically around this time, it is a, maybe, maybe a town of 500 people, so really small. Uh, Nazareth is a rural kind of hilly rock country. And so this is where he goes back to where his family grew up. His disciples are with them. And here's what happens. Verse 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Now, this is interesting. What is going on here? Why are they astonished and why are they offended? Well, it's likely happening because of two reasons. Uh, one is that Jesus, as we see here in other passages, is clearly a very brilliant teacher. And this is significant because maybe to put modern language on it, uh, his field, right? The, the field of rabbinical teaching was highly competitive. A lot of young boys aspired to be great teachers, and this wasn't just a Jewish thing in the Greco-Roman ancient world. Rhetorical skill was highly prized. And so to stand out is significant, not just because a lot of people wanted to be good at it, but again, a Jewish context, synagogues work differently than churches do today, uh, where churches have a pastor who primarily you know, preaches at the church that he is at. Uh, at this time, you, the rabbis didn't stay at a synagogue. So you would, you would hear different rabbis almost every single Sabbath day as they would come and teach in your synagogue. So not only is Jesus brilliant, but even this small town of Nazareth, I mean, these people have heard plenty of teachers and yet there's something about this man that, makes him, that sets him apart from anything that they have ever heard. So that's pretty astonishing that this man is so good at it. The second reason uh, is because when you consider his upbringing, he, as a laborer or as a carpenter, as we'll talk about more in a second, he was not a scribe. And that's significant for two reasons. So I'm going to go back to this here, points and subpoints. okay? So there's two reasons why it's significant that his upbringing may, leaves them astonished. The first is this. Uh, one of the things that's different about ancient culture, even in many parts of the world, even today still, is that unlike us, like, you know, modern Western society, like we love rags to riches stories, right? We love the underdog, the down and out, the person who like pulls themselves up by their bootstraps and like becomes really successful. Like we love these stories, right? This is why uh, politicians and all of their ads try to talk about how normal they are, right? Because they want us to view them that they're just like us, right? They talk about how normal, how average they are. We love people to be like us or to be maybe down and out and come and conquer everything. Uh, ancient culture, and even many cultures today, are not like that, right? In ancient culture, in this time, class lines were very rigid. And so, in other words, you can only be great if you were born into greatness. If you somehow came, came through a bunch of money or something happened to you that technically allowed you to raise, to raise your class rank, uh, you would be viewed skeptically. Like, people would be like, you're not supposed to do this. Why are you successful the way that you are? I mean, it, literally, like, if we were in this culture and a politician were to run their ad, they would talk about how, they would, instead of exaggerating how normal their upbringing was, they would exaggerate how rich they were and how awesome they were and how wise they were and how all the decisions they made made everyone else better. That is what you would do. And so Jesus here is not, he is not supposed to be a great scholar or teacher because he didn't grow up like that. Right? His class of people are not supposed to do what he is doing. 
It kind of, maybe you can think of it this way. This isn't my story, but I've talked to many people who it is. But maybe if you have grew up in a really small town and you eventually left, maybe you went to school, you got a job, uh, you might know that some people view people who leave their small towns as kind of traitors. Like even if you like where you grew up, like your family and your friends might view you as, they might assume that you think you're better than them. Uh, that you got out. I mean, you are often, even if you're successful, like some people, if you go back to your small town, if this is your story, you know that people look at you kind of with disdain. And that's what's happening here. They're saying, not only is someone like you not supposed to be as brilliant, but we know who you are. You're just like us. And now you're here doing these amazing things. They would not, they would, they would literally be mad at him for it. Like, who are you to be something that you're not supposed to be? So again, his rise in the ranks, that's skeptical. The second thing is he was a laborer, not a scribe, which means he does not have the proper qualifications. Now, just as a side note to point out here, it says in verse three that he was a carpenter. Uh, Carpenter comes from the Greek word tekton, which literally means craftsman or builder. I just like to point this out. Um, There's a lot of debate about this. If you were to ask me, I I think Jesus primarily did not work with wood. I think he primarily worked with stone uh, for two reasons, even today, but certainly in the first century, all of the houses were made out of stone and masonry. Uh, there was a large rock quarry a couple of miles from where Jesus grew up. Now there was debate on to whether, whether Joseph, Jesus' dad, and Jesus and his brothers ever worked there. But there was a lot of stonework where he, were, where he lived and where he grew up. Not to say he never worked with wood, but it seems to be likely that he would have worked with stone more than wood. And I also think it's pretty significant because in the New Testament, you get a lot of stories about how Jesus is our cornerstone. So it makes sense that he works with stone, and now he is literally being the most important stone in our life. And so anyway, he's a laborer, not a scribe. So again, modern language, think of it like this. Think of it as like a scientist who doesn't have a PhD or a master's degree or a bachelor's degree or even finished high school. And they're claiming to be some, you know, some well-known or some amazing scientist. So let me give you an example. <laughs> this example might be a little controversial because of COVID. This is nothing. This is, not a, this is not a thing about COVID and vaccines, okay? But just track with me. Imagine somebody creates a vaccine for malaria, uh, for diarrhea, which is a big problem for children in third world countries, or a cure for cancer. Like they, they come up, they create something that solves a problem, a cure for AIDS, whatever it is, right? Imagine that they actually find something to solve it or to cure it or to fix it. Now, how you know how this works, if you do that, you have to have money and people to test it on. Well, who is signing up for somebody to say, hey, guess what I discovered in my basement? The cure for cancer. So I need some funding and I need some test people. Nobody, even if it's true, nobody's signing up for that. Why? Because you have no credentials. Like you and I would not trust them. And that is what Jesus is facing here. He did not go to school for this. He has not been, he's, he waited until he was 30 years old to start his ministry, but he was a laborer. He was a craftsman. He didn't do any of this. And now we're supposed to trust you? Like you have no, you didn't even finish high school. And yet you're saying that you have the wisdom that leads to life. People would not trust him. They would view him skeptically because he does not have the proper qualifications to do what he is doing. And of course, not only that, they, they refer to him as Mary's son, which again, in, in a patriarchal society, that was not normal. You would not normally refer to someone as from, uh, someone in the name of their mother. You would talk about even in their father, even if their father was deceased. Uh, you can, I mean, it's not a perfect uh, comparison, but even think of like when you get married, right? In our culture today, typically the woman takes the man's name. And so maybe someone who goes up to my wife, her maiden name was Christina and calls her, or sorry, her maiden name was Kramer and calls her Christina Kramer. You'd be like, that's not my name. So maybe that's kind of disrespectful that's going on here. Uh, And it also seems to be um, uh, controversial or disrespectful in the sense of 
talking about Mary, talking about Mary, not Joseph, is like, we knew where you came from. Like, we know that Joseph wasn't your real dad. We know that something else went around here. And so you're not qualified. You, you must assume you're better than us. If you know, Jesus never says that. And you're not even a legitimate child. And we're supposed to listen to you. And so again, for them, the question is, how is this man doing this? How is he so brilliant? They don't like it. They don't, they're not happy about it. And they don't want to believe him. And it makes us think, we see this particularly in this text, but it's helpful for us to consider as well, that as you read this, you cannot help but think and be reminded that Jesus is not who you think he should be. He's not. He doesn't come from the, uh, he doesn't come from the right social class. He doesn't have the right uh, teaching. Uh, he doesn't have the right upbringing. Of course, this makes sense because we know his kingdom, which he came to initiate and invite us into, is upside down, right? You love people. You give people grace. You do not domineer people. You do not manipulate people. You do not take advantage of people. And his kingdom is this upside down, unexpected kingdom. And so it makes sense that the king is the same way. And if we were in Nazareth, as much as we would like to assume we would just believe Jesus at face value, you and I would have a problem with him. And the question is, will we allow ourselves to experience him and allow him to challenge us? Because they wouldn't expect this. I like to think of it this way. Uh, if you call New City Church home, you know this. The first time that Christina met me, she thought I was rude and weird. <laughs> now, after this initial meeting, if you had said to her, and guess what? You're going to marry that man. She'd be like, okay. <laughs> right. Because right, here's the thing. Also at this time, I'm at a freshman year of college, she wasn't sure she ever wanted to get married, and she would definitely did not want to have kids. And so again, this guy who's rude is weird to say, hey, guess what? You're going to start a family with him one day. She'd be like, okay. But I mean, you know, <laughs> what can I say? Right? So that's what happens, right? You just, sometimes things go the way that you not, might not expect. That's clearly what is happening here. And so that being said, let's keep reading. Verse four. So here, that's, that's the mood. Like, you're not supposed to do this. We don't trust you. How are you like this? And it says this, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. So Jesus here responds with a not uncommon phrase in Jewish thought and Greco-Roman thought. This is not a phrase that was original to Jesus, but it's just this idea that sometimes people from their own family and hometown, understandably, people have a hard time viewing somebody as different when they grew up with them. And we know this is the case for Jesus. We see it here. In fact, in John chapter 7, it tells us that not even his brothers believed in him. Now, we know this changed after his resurrection because James, one of his brothers, writes a New Testament letter and is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Another one of his brothers, Jude, also writes a New Testament letter. But at this point, they didn't believe him either. Now, of course, again, if you've been with us, we're supposed to reflect on what we've read so far in Mark chapter 4. The first parable that Jesus teaches is the parable of the sower, which, again, kind of puts the onus on the person, not the teacher, if they're, uh, to believe in him. So he talks about scattering the seed everywhere, and some people believe, and some people won't. And so, yes, we need to be winsome, we need to love people, but Jesus seems to be saying it's not on the teacher to get people to believe, that you and I have to decide what we're going to do with Jesus, and his family have to do that here. And so, again, Jesus has become an outsider, and of course, this is a foreshadowing of what's going to ultimately happen to him in Jerusalem when he is rejected by many and killed. So they didn't believe him. And then verse 5 says, he was not able to do a miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And verse 6, and he was amazed at their unbelief. Now, when you read these verses, this might make you and I uncomfortable here. 
because we like to think of Jesus as God, which of course he is, 100% God. What we sometimes, oftentimes maybe undervalue is that at the same time, while he was on earth, he was 100% man. And Mark in his gospel is pretty unapologetic by, about talking about Jesus' humanness. So in other parts of the gospel of Mark, it talks about how he became weary. Uh, it talks about how he was often, or how he was disappointed. Uh, it talks about how he was ignorant of his return. Like when he was going to return a second time, at least when he was on earth, he did not know when that was going to be. And so again, it's just as a side note, it's always funny to me when people are predicting when he's going to come back. Cause I'm like, if Jesus didn't know, you ain't know either. Anyway, we'll keep going. Uh, it talks about how he was fearful before the crucifixion. And here we see that he is unable to even influence his own family because of their lack of unbelief. And that impacts what he can do for them. It's pretty significant. Now, interestingly here, he is amazed. Now, he's, he's not amazed at their sinfulness. Uh, he's not amazed at their ability to do evil. He is amazed at their hardness of heart and their unwillingness to believe or to trust. And of course, this is a theme throughout the gospel of Mark that as we, as Jesus encounters people, we don't know how they're going to react, right? Here, his family rejects him, but a few stories before a Gentile non-Jew embraces Jesus as Lord. We never know he is going, how he's going to react. And so that being said, what we see in many places in the gospels and what we see particularly in this story is this, that the greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act, but our unwillingness to accept him. The greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God, God to act, but our unwillingness to accept him and what he's doing. That's clearly what is happening here, right? This no-name manual laborer without credentials from a town that nobody has ever heard of, right? They rejected him because they want something different in a Messiah. And so can we. Right? So can we. That God doesn't act how we want him to act. He doesn't do what we want him to do. That his timeline is different than ours. Again, this is not to say we can't have questions and doubts and be in pain and wonder why God is not moving. It's not to say that you can't feel that way. But he is different than what we often think. And when he does what we don't want him to do, it's not because he doesn't care, he doesn't, hasn't, hasn't moved, but he doesn't move how we would want him to move. It kind of makes me think of, you know, you might see this sometimes when people post online. They're like, if you could tell yourself something from 15 years ago, like if you could go back in time, what would you tell yourself? Or what would you tell your high school self, right? And then you have some of these people who are like very sentimental and they'd be like, you know, you can do it. Or like, forgive yourself. Or don't give up. Or uh, uh, dump that man. Like, don't, don't let him go, right? You have all these like feel good messages. And then you have the people that are pragmatic and practical. And they're like, oh, buy Bitcoin. Like, that's what I, yeah, just buy Bitcoin, right? Buy stock in Amazon or Apple or Coke, right? Because you're like, well, I want a lot of money. This is the way to do it. Tell myself to do it, right? Because what's happening in these scenarios, particularly like Bitcoin, right? It's, confu it's even confusing now. Like, nobody knows how it works, but people are making money on it, right? And you have these stories who accidentally bought Bitcoin like 15 years ago, and now they're like a millionaire because they forgot that they had it, right? What happens, though, when Bitcoin was introduced is people looked at that skeptically. It was new. It was different. And so they did not invest. Right? That's what's happening here. Right? We can often reject God because he doesn't operate how we think he should, as if you and I have any idea how the God of the universe should act. Right? We are limited in our age, in our ethnicity, in our season of life, where we live in the world. And we often can tell God what he is supposed to do. When he doesn't do what we think he should do, he is, sometimes, he is somehow wrong. And of course, we are right. The problem here is not that Jesus doesn't want to move, is that people are rejecting him. They're unwilling to accept him. And so they're going to miss out on what he is offering them. 
And so let's continue to read. We'll start in verse 6 again. Here's what it says next. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then it says, he was going around the villages teaching. He summoned the 12, which were his disciples, and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. And so Jesus here, again, he's doing what he primarily came to do, not to perform really cool miracles, not to show how amazing he is, but to talk about and to teach and to initiate the kingdom of God, to invite people into his kingdom. And now he's beginning to commission his disciples to go out and to spread his message, which is cool and all. But if you've been with us up until this point, this sounds kind of strange, Right? They have, up until this point, they've been very confused about certain things that Jesus has said and done. They've even gotten in the way of him trying to do certain things. And now he's going to send them out when we know they still don't fully understand. Right? They don't understand when he's about to be crucified that he has to actually die because they think if you're going to initiate a kingdom, well, you got to be alive to see it happen. Right? Uh, we know that Judas is actually going to end up betraying Jesus. Uh, Peter is going to deny Jesus. These same people who clearly are not ready, he sends them out to share his good news with others. Why would he do this? Well, it seems to show us here that just like the disciples, he invites us to participate. And I think it's a reminder for the disciples and for us who do not have it all together, who do not have it all figured out, to remember this, that your shortcomings are not a legitimate reason to not share the hope of Jesus, right? Your lack of knowledge, your lack of being amazing, your uh, lack of holiness, or your lack of never being perfect is not a legitimate reason not to share the hope and the love of Christ with others, right? God invites us to participate. He doesn't need us. He invites us where we are, not 10 years from now, not 20 years from now when we got everything figured out or we think we're going to have everything figured out. Today, where you are, he invites us into what he is doing with our shortcomings and our unknowing of what to do. And this is uh, particularly true for me. Like I remember, I'll let you, a uh, little secret here for you. Don't leave the church, by the way, after I tell you this. Um, but I remember in college, when I first started thinking, oh, maybe ministry is what I want to do, I was really terrified that what, what if I teach people the wrong thing? Like, I'm not going to try to teach the Bible wrong, but like, what if I do that? Um, is God going to be like really mad at me? Or what's going to happen? And so I'll just be honest with you. Um, if you've been coming to New City Church for any length of time, I guarantee you there have been times where I have taught you something wrong. Now, please don't leave. I, I, I promise I'm not doing it on purpose. But it, my, every person is limited understanding. Uh, I mean, we, we cannot understand and know everything correctly. There have been times where I have taught you the wrong thing. And it used to really bother me until I got to the point where I was like, you know, at the end of the day, if I can at least honestly say before Jesus, I've tried and my heart was in the right place, and I could say, hey, my motivations were pure. It's not that it doesn't matter that I might teach the wrong thing, but I can at least with honesty and integrity say, God, I was trying to be a part of what you were doing. And so wherever you find yourself, whatever career field you're in, uh, season of life, friend group, listen, you are not going to know all there is to know. I, I get paid in part to study the Bible, right? And so I probably know about the Bible more than the average person, not because I'm smarter than the average person, but like I get paid to do this. If you were me, you would also probably know more than the average person because this is your job, right? And I, and I still get things wrong. You will always get things wrong. But God is inviting you where you are to participate in his mission of loving people and allowing you to see him move in really amazing ways. Disciples did not have it figured out, and he invited them. You do not have it all figured out, and God is inviting you as well. And so this is what he says to his disciples as they get ready to go. Verse 8. He said, he instructed them to take uh, nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, 
but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. Now, one of the things that makes uh, understanding, uh, interpreting the Bible differently is that when you read passages that are narrative like this and you see something happen, the question is, is this a prescription or is this a description? In other words, is Jesus trying to tell us something here or is, he just, or is the Bible just explaining what it ha- what's happening and not saying you actually have to follow it? Right? So is he prescribing that in order to tell people about Jesus, you need to live a very ascetic lifestyle? Or is he just describing in this particular moment what his disciples were supposed to do? Now, my understanding, again, I teach things wrong, so I could be wrong on this, right? It is my understanding that this part, this, uh, these verses are description, not prescription. So he's not saying that you need to live a very um, minimalistic lifestyle to tell people about Jesus. Now, why would I say that? Well, this is actually really awesome. Uh, and the, the, the biblical authors are brilliant. Whether or not you follow Jesus, I mean, they're just brilliant. What you may not know, what you wouldn't know unless you studied this, um, is that the four things that Jesus tells his disciples to bring, they are not random. In fact, they are the same exact four things that God tells Israel to take in Exodus chapter 12 when they are leaving Egypt. In Exodus chapter 12, he tells them to take the cloak that they are wearing, uh, a belt, sandals, and staff. Here it says, take a staff, take nothing in their belts, uh, wear sandals, and do not put on an extra shirt or an extra tunic. Jesus is telling them to take and wear the same things that God told the Israelites to do in Exodus chapter 12. Now, why is that significant? Well, it seems to be significant because what he's telling them to do here is just as important and revelatory as what God did with, with Israel and Egypt. He's like, just like I told Egypt or Israelites to do this and to trust me on their journey, so I am telling you that what they are doing, the message they are spreading is just as life eternity changing as what God did when he originally called his people out of Israel. That's pretty sweet. And then it says this, it gets even better. Verse 10, he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, When you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now question, description or prescription? Is he saying when you tell someone about Jesus, if they don't listen the first time, peace, bye, too bad you had a chance? Or is he describing something that he wants us to understand? Again, I would argue, could be wrong, that this is also description. Now why? Well, again, knowing the cultural context, and again, they would have picked up on this because they are Jews in Israel in the first century. Um, But Jesus' instructions here to shake the dust off their feet is not a tell people about Jesus and don't be patient with them if they don't listen. Well, why is that? Well, in ancient Israel, uh, there was a Jewish tradition that if you maybe on a business trip or when you traveled or maybe you went to a part of town that was uh, run by Gentiles or pagan cultures or did things that were very dishonoring to God, when you came back to your community or your village or your house, you would shake the dust off your feet. And it was a symbolic saying and expression, not that you would go through some ritual, but to say, "I'm, I'm getting rid of the filth that I encountered. It was a symbolic thing to say, I am not like them. It kind of makes me think, I've told you I hate lotion of any kind. I hate COVID, like with the hand sanitizers, I hate it. And so, you know, when you could, particularly last year, when you could go to like a doctor's office or somewhere and they would have the hand sanitizer, I'm trying to say, like on the front desk and like they would watch you put it on, I would do one of these things like pretend that I pressed it and, you know, it was like a symbolic washing, right? You know, maybe, I mean, I wouldn't do that, but if I were to do that, right, it was like a symbol. I didn't actually, but I was, so that's what's happening here. And so what's, well, here's why this is significant, that Jesus here is flipping that script. 
And what he is saying is that salvation is not based on your ethnicity or your bloodline, but on acceptance of my message. He's not saying, go to a town, tell them once, and leave if they don't listen. He's saying, go, teach them, share them about my love and in my kingdom. And if they reject me, you are to treat them as an unbeliever. You are to shake the dust off your feet because they do not trust in me. This is not, again, that you should not be patient and love people. He's saying, if you reject me, you're rejecting God himself. And then it says this, the last two verses we'll read in this passage. It says, so they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. And so the disciples go out. I mean, again, you have to imagine that they're anxious. They are worried. They don't, they're like, well, what if we say, say something wrong? What if we do something wrong? But yet they do it. They follow Jesus' instructions, and God clearly moves. And so the question for us as we read this passage is to really, I want to end with maybe two questions. As we read this and consider what God is doing and what he might be inviting us into, the first thing I want us to ask ourselves is this. Uh, where is God sending you? Right? If you're a follower of Jesus this morning and you have doubts and questions and you don't have it all figured out, uh, where is he sending you? Where does he have you? Uh, what family is around you? What workplace? Uh, what school? What community? What season of life? Where is God sending you? Uh, do you see this as a place that God is inviting you to partake in his mission, or is it just kind of a holding period or a stepping stone to something else? Right? Jesus, and clearly and intentionally, was sending his disciples out. And so knowing that God send us, sends us out, here is the second question for us to consider if you're a follower of Jesus. Not only where is God sending you, but who is God sending you to? Who in specific? Like, not just like, oh, a group of people. Like, specifically, who is it that God has placed in your life that he wants you to share the love and hope of Jesus with him? And I get it. The idea of evangelism can make us uncomfortable. What if we say the wrong thing? What if we do the wrong thing? But let me just say this. For those of us that call New City Church home and are followers of Jesus, let us not gather and huddle up every Sunday morning and then never run the play. Let's not be a people who hear and worship and are reminded of the grace and mercy of God in our life and do nothing with it. Now, this is not a, you need to tell people about Jesus every time you talk to them, but maybe consider a specific person in your life who this week you can love in an intentional manner. You can ask them how I can be praying for you. Or maybe you just have a coworker and you've talked about life. You know what they're going through. You could just say, Hey, I've been praying for you for this. Nobody, even if they're not like, nobody says, don't pray for me. Right? Because even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're like, well, if, in case God does exist, Sounds like a good thing to do, right? So well, who can you pray for? Uh, who can you intentionally love? Like, is there someone that you know who's going through a hard time and there's something practical you can do to encourage them? Not that you're going to completely change their life, uh, not that you're going to fix their situation, but who is one person this week practically that you can do something for to care for them? And listen, uh, in some sense, it's Thanksgiving week, and so maybe you're not around the normal people you'd be around, but you're also going to be around people you don't normally see all the time. This might be a difficult week for some. Who is that person that you might encounter this week that does not yet know Jesus that you can love, even though it's going to be hard for you, right? Who can you pray for once a day? That is the question. Uh, if they live locally, the good news is it's the Christmas time of year, and so it's an easy way to invite people. Uh, we're doing a Christmas Eve Eve service this year on December 23rd. Uh, it's very, uh, you know, it's not awkward. It's not weird. It's just we're celebrating the hope of Jesus, and so everybody loves a baby. Baby Jesus is going to be great. Uh, right? That's an easy way to invite people to engage. Who is God sending you 
Uh, and so here's what I want to do. In the seat back in front of you, there is a little card with a name. Now, you don't have to do this, especially if you're not quite sure about this God thing. I would just invite you to sit uh, as we take a minute to do this. But if you are a follower of Jesus, would you take out this name card and think, but who is one person? And you can just write their first name. I'll tell you more in a second. Uh, every seat has a pen in front of them. Who is one person? Not, not a general group of people, but one person this week that God is sending you to, that's going to come in your path, that you can love intentionally, that you can pray for, and that you can share the hope of Jesus with. Who is that person? So what I want to do is I want to invite the band up on the stage. Uh, and if you know that person, and my guess is you likely do, go ahead and write that name down. And uh, what we're going to do here is we're going to move into a time of confession, uh, and then we're going to sing one last song. And so here's what I would encourage you to do. Uh, write the name of the person who you would like to love and to care for uh, this week. Um, and then as we move into a time of confession, we do this every Sunday here at New City Church as, as an invitation, not of obligation, that God always responds to repentance with grace. And so would you take a moment here in a second, uh, pray uh, silently before the Lord, confess where you fell short this week, where you need his grace, knowing he is gladly and willingly and able to give it. And would you also pray for this person? Would you confess the times that you don't have the courage to trust God? And would you ask for him to give you the courage this week to tangibly love them well. And then we're going to sing one final song together, and I would encourage you to sing that song with this in your hand as a kind of a prayer for your soul, but also for them. And then as you leave today, I want to just want to invite you to drop their name in the giving boxes. There's one in the back of the auditorium or in the lobby as a church staff. We would love to join you this week and pray for them. Um, pray for them. So if you would do that as you leave, we would love that as well. So take a moment. If you haven't written that name down, I know you know it. If you follow Jesus, I know you know it. Don't be afraid. Write it down. Would you confess where you have fallen short this week? Would you ask God for the courage to love them well? And then we're going to kind of sing a prayer over ourselves and these people together. So would you go to God in a time of confession?